Welcome to the Better the Pond podcast. In each episode, Warren Berry, CEO and founder of Instinctive Solutions, talks to amazing people doing incredible things that lead the charge of generosity. We'll discover what makes each guest a bit of an odd duck and how they continue to better the pond around us. The migration starts right now with our host, Warren Berry. Hello, everyone, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Better the Pond podcast, where we talk to amazing people doing incredible things that lead the charge of generosity. My name is Warren Berry, and I'm your host and the founder of Instinctive Solutions, where we believe that everyone is an odd duck, but that's what makes them awesome. Today, our guest is Mr. Edward Fitzgerald. Now, Edward is definitely from across the pond. He lives out in the UK. He's an international keynote speaker on sustained innovation. He's a film producer working on, with the likes of Brian Tracy and Jack Canfield, and now the new-to-be-released movie documentary, Dreamer. He's a best-selling author, and he's a yachtsman who's raced around the world in which he actually sustained an acquired brain injury. Now, it was through a doctor telling him that he had hit his threshold that moved him forward, so now he lives his life on the edge, has learned to trust his gut, and wants to transform the lives of three billion people. He fully believes that whatever your mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. Welcome to the Better the Podcast, Mr. Edward Fitzgerald. So... Edward, um, I really want to welcome you to the Better the Pond podcast. Uh, it, it is so great to have you here. Um, and Edward, so you were you were once a gosling, um, and now here you are as a full-grown goose, and you're 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 full of wisdom. So, Edward, I want to know what's your backstory? Who are you? Uh, tell us all about yourself. What's got you here? What's got you here today? I'm just a run-of-the-mill gosling and, and, and goose, really, that's just had lots of opportunities thrown, thrown my way. I guess the, the oddball part was the fact that I, um, I got uh, not exactly shown the door at uh, university, but I, I certainly got to leave a lot earlier than I should have done, uh, primarily because my big, biggest love is uh, yacht racing. And it was felt that I was um, spending too much time racing dinghies and boats and things like that, rather than actually being seen to be studying, even though I was still getting the grades. Um, so I, I left and uh, joined a, a little company called Motorola as an I'm gonna, engineer. I'm going to back you up here a little bit there, Edward. Yeah. I want to. I want to know. I want to know about you as a Gosling. I want to know where did where did you come okay. from? Give me give me some more backstory. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Um, born in South London, um, my father was a builder and decorator, but spent um, a lot of time in the film industry, um, decorating building sets for um, big sort of TV productions and, and um, films that were filmed at Pine Top Studios, uh, just, which is just outside of London. Um, my mum was a stay-at-home mum, and I've got a, a younger, younger sister that's 18 months younger than myself. And we didn't have a, you know, sort of a, a um, a meteoric um, view of, of uh, 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 just a normal childhood, really. And, um, but very caring and nurturing parents um, gave me a lot of scope to do what I wanted to do. Um, whatever my decisions were, they made, you know, enabled those to happen, uh, both you know, um, when I was studying and 
and what have you. Uh, I did actually want to go into the Navy. I went to a Naval College uh, when I was, when I was tr truly a gosling. So um, <laughs> uh, along with everything that, that went with it. So even uh, we, that was in central London and we would do our nautical boating activities in a um, in an old disused well it wasn't disused at the time it was was still a working dockyard called Limehouse Basin and that's where they've sort of built uh, luxury apartments now with with the canary with the, with the uh, financial center uh, that is expanded to sort of Canary Wharf that sort of east part of London. What was your affinity to water what was your affinity to I mean you're talking about being in the navy and what what was the draw? Uh, good question. Um, my father was in the parachute regiment, so uh, and hated the water. Um, he was sick on troop ships, so, um, so it certainly wasn't from my father. I had an uncle that was in the navy during the Second World War, so I'm not sure where where it really came from. But there was just that I've always had that draw to the water, and that's stayed me, you know, stayed with me all of my my life. Really, I I um, my mistress is the sea. Um, regardless of what my wife might say, but um, I, I get—I uh, don't know—it's when I'm around water, and even if I'm um, working hard, I always find that I'm much, much uh, more rounded and more balanced, and able to cope with things once I've been sailing. So you literally—you literally better the pond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've sailed in, I've been very fortunate. I've sailed a lot of the oceans around the world, mainly racing. Um, it's only now that my sons are, are growing up that I do sort of what would be termed as sort of leisure sailing. Most of it was um, racing yachts or dinghies and things. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So you went from uh, having an affinity to the water, what I joined the Navy, and then where did you, where did you go from there? I even, I even, I was studying marine electronics and telecommunications. Um, and there was still right up until that point um just before my professional career started was i was still looking to go into the navy and then i looked at uh what the artificer pay was in the royal navy versus what i could do on land and i the uh the land job um paid more and as it as it turns out i've actually worked in about 80 different countries um since since then so i haven't uh, that that whole thing about join the navy see the world um, I, I, I didn't join the Navy, but I've still seen the world and um, I reserved the, the, the sailing part for, for my leisure. So if you if you had the opportunity to do it again, would you do the same thing? Yes, I would. I've always lived my life along the lines of um, whatever things were presented were the right things at the time. Um, you know, if I made the wrong decisions, I'd, with hindsight, I'd look back and say, Oh, I wish I'd have done X or Y, and I, I you know, I, I chose not to beat myself up and say, well, I can only, I can only make the decisions that I made at the time with the knowledge that I had. With hindsight, obviously, you see the, the issues and you have more knowledge. Um, so I, you know, no, I wouldn't go back and and do it uh, any different because it's led me in a different path, and obviously, the the paths that it's led me to has led me to where I am now. Uh, perhaps I would have led, it would have led me to where I am now much sooner.
Right. So bring us up to speed. You know, we talked a little while back, uh, Edward, when I first got to know you. And um, I mean, I think you have an absolutely fascinating story. So, you know, shall we bring you up to speed into your into your sailing days and then where that's led you up until today? What, what's that story? So, yeah. So throughout my professional career, I, I formed form, so the odd the odd the odd goose or the odd gosling. What's made me an odd duck is that. Uh, I started a consultancy practice when I was age 23 for big, you know, consulting with big multinationals, having only done a few years in in, uh, in industry itself. So I guess that was the odd bit was the fact that I, there was me, fresh faced, 23 year old, advising large corporations on how to bring products and services to market in various markets around the world. And I haven't really looked back from that and, and interspersed with my traveling with work. I've always, um, as I said just a moment ago, work hard, play hard. I've always tried to in involve um, the sailing aspects of it. Even when I was based in the south of France, I, I found that the sailing wasn't very good. So I'd, I'd fly back at the weekend to go racing and um, I'd be back on the, at the client's site on the, on the Monday morning. And about nine years ago, yes, it would be nine years ago, um, I was just another race in a four seven winds which is about 35 miles an hour i got hit on the forehead with a, a stainless steel ring about the thickness of my thumb and um because of my competitive nature apparently according to the neurologist i continued racing we were leading our class at the time in this in this race that races around at one of the islands that we have off the south of the uk and then the, i wasn't completely diagnosed at the time but the um issues that I had was I'd, I'd, I'd lost connections to all my learned memory my speech was slurred and labored and I was literally wandering from one room to another not couldn't hold a thought in my head which is rather concerning when you're a consultant and you're advising large corporations if you can't remember anything then you're not much value um, so my the, the businesses that I built up over that period of 20 plus years um, you know uh, unfortunately, you know, sort of crumbled and went to the wayside and closed down because I wasn't able to run them. Um, I had former directors that uh, took advantage of the situation. It was um, quite a low point in my sort of professional career and, and what have you. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember the the moment? Do you remember the, the when it when it all happened? Do you used to you still have that memory of? What? I do. I do. Which is kind of bizarre, really. But I do because I was still conscious. It didn't knock me out completely. Um, initially, I thought I'd, I'd because the, the tail end, I don't know if anyone's familiar with sailing, was the, the, the sail that goes at the front, it's called the jib. And um, it's quite a, because we're in full seven winds, it's quite a really heavy canvas sail and quite a large um, ring on the end of the sail, on the corner of the sail. And you have ropes tied to it. So it was the tail end of those ropes that hit me. So the, the, the metal hit me on the forehead and the, the ropes hit me across the cheek. And initially I thought I'd split my, my cheek open. That's just how, and that was where the most of the pain was. Um, but I, yeah, I can, vis, you know, I can visualize, still visualize it now. It would just appear to be um, historical events that I'd lost. Mm. Um, it was mainly learned memories. So, you know, I still recognize family and friends. And that was the embarrassing thing actually was, um, I'd be walking down the street and I'd smile at somebody thinking I, I knew them but couldn't think where from and the problem is if you smile, smile, even if you smile at a stranger they smile back at you and I was never the I was none the wiser to know whether like is he just being weird and not saying hello to us 
because outwardly I didn't look any different. So that must have been quite something for you to go from, I mean, being a 23 year old and you're, you know, you're creating a consultancy business with, with major corporations, which is a huge endeavor in and of itself to all of a sudden on a dime, your life turns just it switches in an instant. Yeah. I mean, obviously I, um, I was what, 40, what have I been then? 43 or something. Um, so it was, it was quite a way through my career. I was running projects uh, remotely in New Zealand at the time. And I mean, it was the realization that you know, I opened the laptop trying to work and it wasn't, I think the, the, the profound thing for myself was it wasn't that the login was asking me for a username and password and it was like, Oh, I've forgotten it. It was just no realization that there should have even been a password or, or anything. And it was, you know, I've God knows what I would have done if I'd have actually got into it. I probably wouldn't even been able to navigate my way around, you know, word or, 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 or some of the, you know, email programs or whatever it was. And the problem was, was that, um, and I still do now, I've relearned how to do it, was I would use a different pass, unique password that was roughly 18 characters. And I, I would memorize them. So I always had a good memory for name, you know, numbers and characters and what have you. And so it was that kind of, the, the little things, the realization that, oh God, there, there's just nothing. I don't even know, but it was asking, it should have been asking me for a password. You know, just, just bizarre little things like that. Yeah, that um, not, let alone not, the big stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's not fascinating that you you know the big the big things and names and whatnot that you you know had learned over time that you couldn't remember but yet it was some of the the, the smaller with numbers and things that you actually you could isn't mm. that fascinating what our brain does yeah yeah so where did you go from there edward um you know i mean obviously now your life has turned um you can't remember things um now where did you you know bring us up to speed from that point when, when people say about having a brain injury, quite often they don't understand that, that what's coupled with that is quite a lot of other issues that, that then, you know, so depression and, um, I, you know, I, at the time I was having severe headaches. Uh, I had two sons at the time. Third one's come along since. And, you know, they were young and screaming. So I'd, it was, uh, I was left with hypersensitive hearing, which I still have now. So along with the intense headaches, it just become unbearable, apart from the, the total exhaustion. And um, as I said, you know, I was diagnosed with clinical depression, but it's not, you know, it's not a constant, you know, over the, about 18 months or two years, you know, that I was, that there's the highs and the lows of, of being recovered and then depressed again. You know, I had, um, one of the things that um, I realized was that I wasn't able to articulate to the neurologist and their supporting staff, the problems I was having. So they were making assumptions. And um, especially, obviously, the, the frontal lobe is, is the you know, executive functioning. And a lot of the things like um, I had hypersensitive taste and smell as well as hearing. And they were like, well, those aren't related to that part of the brain that's been injured. You know, so it just, so I, I realized that I, I couldn't actually read. Uh, well, I could recognize words. And um, in order for me to articulate, or this was my rationale of it at the time, even though I couldn't really rationalize things, was I needed to understand something inside me said I needed to understand how the brain worked so that I could then explain it better because I was always struggling for the words. 
And so I just learned to read the, the leaflets that they give out for all the different you know, brain injuries or injuries to different parts of the brain. And that's how I started to learn to read again. So, you know, the words meant something. Well, the, the words on themselves I could read, but I put them in a sentence. It didn't make any sense. And certainly if I'd, I'd you know, spend several hours just reading one side of paper, one sheet, I couldn't retain the knowledge. But, you know, over a period of months, I, I realised that I was was reading and it became a little bit more fluent and I was able to retain some of the information. It was shortly after that, probably three or four months after that I'd, I'd done that, that I was told that um, I was being, I, I was expressing how frustrated I was and, you know, was sat there with the knowledge and the, and the, and the counsellor and, and the counsellor turned around and said, well, look, you know, you're going, trying to be nice to me, said, well, look, you're going through a period of bereavement. Um, the neurologist said, you know, you've reached this plateau and you're not gonna, you're mourning the loss of your capabilities and functions. You're not gonna be able to work internationally like you were before. And, you know, but something apart from anger, just something deep inside me said, I don't believe this. And it wasn't until after that, that fateful meeting that I realized that I started to think, oh, hang on a minute. I've just learned, I've learned to read again. And I have remembered, I am remembering everything that I read. So hang on, my memory's not um, gone completely. And so I, I didn't have any reference point. I didn't, there wasn't anything that, that um, you know, people would tell, you know, recount tales of people that have had spinal injuries and they've learned to walk again and the spinal cords, re, you know, reconnected, but nothing with relation to the brain. So I didn't have any um, social reference to say, well, okay, that person's got better or, you know, that's had a similar accident to myself. And how did, that, how did that feel, Edward? I mean, when you know, you mentioned that you know that there were, there were the, the the people that you're working with you, and well, I'm sure well intentioned, um, but they were making assumptions um, on on what you know what you were capable of or not capable of. You were having a hard time trying to articulate that, um, and then to the point where saying, "Well, I'm sorry, Edward, but you've plateaued. Like you, you're not going to get any farther." And, I mean, how did you feel about that? How did, what, what did that feel? Initially, it was anger. <laughs> Initially, it was anger. And then there was just something inside me. I, I can't call it my subconscious. Um, whether, you know, there's a, a, as many neurons in your gut as there are in your, your head, you know. So I, whether there was some, some um, something else within me that said, I don't believe this. This is just my intuition was telling me that, that this didn't didn't fit and but I could obviously part of the brain that I couldn't make any sense of that so um, I just started doing the opposite so I didn't have any reference or starting point so the first realization was that hang on a minute you're telling me I've plateaued and yet in the last three months I've learned to read again and I'm retaining the information so that's new information but I've just lost access to everything else historically so I just thought well, okay well I don't believe them. And I just started, so I had the list of all the things that the neurologist had told me not to do. Don't stress your brain, don't do this, don't do that. You know, um, even the, the, the very first project I, I took um, was either going working with an existing client uh, overseas or to stay local and um, work with a, with a company that, that was probably the most stressful I could ever think was the most stressful company I've ever worked with. And, um, and I thought, no, I'm going to do the opposite. So I started exercising my brain. I started to doing, started to learn new things. 
um, just quizzes and just anything to exercise the brain. I just had this complete and utter belief that the brain is such an amazing organ that you don't, that they still, we're still learning. And a lot of the medicine that's practiced at the moment, no disrespect, is based upon 20th century knowledge of the brain, not, you know, not the advancements that we have now. And over a period of time, I couldn't tell, you know, one of the problems I still have is, is working out timelines for things historically. I probably wasn't very observant or very good with that anyway, but um, I'd have to try and work out, okay, where was I when this happened to work out a particular date? So I, I guess I, probably over the next year and a bit, I would have just memories, you know, schoolboy French grammar that I hadn't, you know, I forgot we'd come back and then something else had just come back you know from left field right field all sorts of and it's just like oh where did that come from these just snippets of memories and that gradually built up to the point where I'm actually starting to learn new things I mean the, the weirdest thing was the first project first client I had to, to, to I, you know, financially I had to do something work with after the head injury um, I was doing things that I'd been, you know, that professionally I'd been doing 20 years earlier and I could do in my sleep. And, it, but I was doing them on, I was making decisions based upon gut feels. I just, that wasn't right engineering wise or, but I couldn't say categorically, well, you can't do it like this because of X, Y, and Z. I just didn't have the X, Y, and Z knowledge that something instinctively said, no, you've got to do it this way which is the other bizarre thing of how, you know, obviously how, how I was able to know instinctively that that was, was right or wrong. But, you know, interesting that, you know, the, 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 lever, the lever that you had was for somebody to tell you that you couldn't. Yeah, absolutely. Right? That and I'm so hard. thankful for that. Yeah. And, and the fact is that you trusted your gut, you trusted your instincts, you know, that piece inside of you that said that was, that was talking to you and said, here, go this way, right? It, it, it was leading you, um, which I think is really fascinating. And, and also I think that you're, you know, you're, you're walking proof of neuroplasticity of the brain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, don't, I wasn't even aware of neuroplasticity until about three, four years ago when I was doing some research because I, someone had asked me to, to write my story and to, to, to co-author a book. And, um, and then I started to, to, to actually work out, okay, what, what did I do? Because I hadn't written down, you know, all the things and the steps I did. So I had to reevaluate re those. And that was when I came across the fact that, that there was a science now that, that recognizes this repair, you know, repairing of neural paths and what have you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite um, fascinating. So, so bring me up, you know, you you know, uh, looking at some, uh, when, when we had talked before, looking at materials, um, you know, you, you've gone into film producing, you've written a book, uh, you're international keynote speaker. So where did that, how did that all come into play, Edward? Bizarre, really. It's kind of it's rather bizarre. Um, part of the healing process, I was reintroduced to meditation um, during, during the, the, the recovery. And um, it was during one of my medita many meditations where I was you know, putting out there in the ether, you know, what I wanted to do. And um, I said, oh, I'm going to um, crazily, you know, uh, they're going to make a book of my uh, film of my book. I'm going to uh, be on stage as an equal with uh, Jack Canfield and, and Brian Tracy. And you know, having never worked with these guys before, 
and bizarrely that the, the the speaking thing i'd always always spoken at conferences um right and because that was as an expert speaker in, in you know in certain subject matter and i'd registered prior to my head injury with a with a couple of agencies in the us and never had any any bookings and about four months after the uh that i had this meditation and manifested i got a phone call um from an agency saying they were looking for a, a, a keynote speaker um to talk on international trade and i was like okay i know i said i wanted to get back into this but my, my initial reaction was uh, um <laughs> zero because that's the other thing with the head injury was zero confidence so it's, it's one thing wanting something it's another matter trying to do it and it was at the United Nations, um, and I said, I just made some excuse and said I, I wasn't available, um, primarily because I didn't feel confident enough to be able to, to to go back to that certainly to that level of speaking. And um, about a week later, um, the agency had said, Well, um, I know we spoke to you about a week ago, um, but one of our other people's that you know one of the other uh, experts that we we represent is a guy called brian tracy and brian tracy was one of the, my sort of um uh, professional development reading material prior, prior to the head injury and, and subsequent and so i i, I entertained the, the the conversation purely because of, of the name and i'm like okay not thinking that i would follow it through with anything and um and that was where they said well look you know uh, it was. I said, "Well, what's the subject matter?" They said, "Well, it's called the Success Blueprint." And I went, "Okay." Look. And I was talking to to one of the associate editors, and I said, "Look, I'm, I have to be honest with you. Yes, I was successful before my head injury, but you know, I, the last few years I've been recovering, and I've you know sort of been you know having to build back up from almost being bankrupt." And and I said it was. So I, I shared my little story with him as my recovery, and the guy said. Oh my God! Well, that's your success story. And I went, well, I thought, and I, and that was the perception. I thought I had in mind that it was something else, business related. Or he went, no, no, no. You know, the subject of success takes different forms, and um, so that's how I ended up co-authoring um, a bestseller with uh, Brian Tracy. But obviously, it was bestseller because his name was on it, not mine. <laughs> but you know, that's very fascinating because I wanted, I wanted to go back to what you said that you know you you started meditation because of your brain injury from there, you know, you put out the intention that you were going to work with Brian Tracy. Yeah. And out of that, you started working with Brian Tracy. Yeah. And then shortly after that, um, I was contacted again by his, uh, his office saying where um, they're going to make a film of a doc film documentary of his life story. And we want to, uh, involve a number of his uh, people that he's worked with over the years so you know his 40 50 year career and um and miraculously so i, I joined the production team as a as a co-producer and um having originally turned it down because my third son was due the same month as uh, as filming as the as the principal filming and as it turned out um my son was four weeks early <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, literally on the flight back from 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 San Diego, my uh, my wife went into labour. But um, yeah, so there's, there's all sorts of things. So I, uh, that's part of what I tried to transfer from 
the, the before the hand injury and afterwards my big reset as i call it is just you know opportunities present themselves and you just have to say yes to them uh, because you don't know where that might lead to so from you know from everything that you've learned edward what do you think the biggest takeaway was if you were to you know talk to our listeners and say you know um if i was to give you one piece of wisdom from the things that you've learned being the wise goose that you are what would that be there's several actually but the the biggest one probably is to trust your instincts every time i've gone against i I realized that my superpower is my my intuition and that's as part of my journey since that i realized and prior to the head injury i would have said it was just serendipity and things presented themselves because you know um, of fate or, or whatever it might have been but it was because i trusted my intuition and whenever i didn't trust my intuition you know business wise or whatever it was didn't you know it didn't work out it, you know that whenever i went against my my intuition things things didn't pan out the way they should have done um the second point would be to um, always ensure that the quality of your questions are the best that they can be because those will determine the quality of the answers that you get so um even if you're meditating and putting things out into as a part part of an in, intention uh, but be careful what you ask for <laughs> just might get it yeah, you know i'm saying is you know be be clear with your intentions so yeah, absolutely you know saying something like well i want more money well you could get a you could get a penny a penny is more money right um yeah. or you could be you know clear and concise so um that's fascinating i you know and and i just want to ask you uh edward from your perspective you know when you say we can call it we can call it fate, we can call it serendipity, we can call it divine intervention, we can call it the universe. There's so many labels that we can give this. Um, what's your take on that? What, what, if you were to choose a word that would describe for you what it is, what word would you choose? Potentially, it, it's got, I guess it's got to be um, serendipity. You know, it was, you know, the, the, what's meant to be will, will, will be if you go off of course slightly you'll be nudged back in the right direction of course you can always be going against your intuition and uh, <laughs> sailing the wrong way for uh, forever for the rest of your life and then wonder why life's dealt you a, a, a bum hand but sometimes you just have to go with the flow just you know play with the cards you're dealt and see what happens I mean, I listened to uh, Tony Robbins and, and I mean, one of the, one of the things that, that I really like what he says is that, you know, life happens for you, not to you. And, um, I, and I fully believe that. And I think, was that kind of sum up what you were trying to say? Yes. Yeah. Especially with the head injury. Um, I think we were, we were talking previously about where experience, you know, experiencing global pandemics and, you know, uh, an unprecedented time of, of people being in, in lockdown and um, a lot of stra- stresses and strains from having, you know, sort of um, freedom of movement. And I feel so fortunate that I had that head injury, even though I had several years of utter pain, you know, heartache, both financially, emotionally, mentally stressful, the things that I learned through that period have set me in good stead for where I am now. So the, the things, the techniques I've learned, the um, being, you know, knowing that I, I should trust myself and trust my own decisions. That part of that is, is actually, if you're a control freak, it's, it's like, I don't 
want to release any control <laughs> it's about releasing and, and and being happy that you know the right things are going to happen isn't that interesting edward that you know you're grateful for a head injury i know i probably wouldn't have been saying that you know sort of uh, well i certainly wasn't saying it you know even three years after the the, the head injury and four years after it's um one of the things that i did do was um, I didn't know who I was, what made me successful, what made me tick. I had to re reevaluate my life. I had to go, I went through various exercises for myself, going through um, identifying what my core values were. Um, and that ultimately left, led me to realize that I was living my life incongruent, you know, sort of, um, not in congruence with, with those core values. So there's things that I was doing, I was making, you know, taking startups from Silicon Valley and helping them expand globally and be a success, you know, to, and they're now, you know, $2 billion plus turnover organizations. And I realized that actually four and a half, I think I, I worked it out, there's over four and a half thousand products that, uh, and services that I'd, I'd helped launch globally in, in around 80 countries. And less than five of those innovations actually had a positive meaningful impact on the lives of, of anyone, you know, of humanity or, or the population. And there was a couple of medical products in there, um, but very, very, very few. And so I realized that my life's path isn't really that at all. And I guess that's sort of really sort of, I've, I've worked through getting the clarity of, of what my purpose is and what it is, what skills that I have inherently and what I'm good at to make the difference to work out okay how how can i follow my purpose or how can i embody that to the best best of my abilities i believe that we're all odd ducks i believe that we're there were all misfits you know tell me about a time when when you were the odd duck where you were different but what did you do to stand out and and you let in earlier said what your superpower so i want, I want to know what your superpower i want to know you know edward what makes you awesome this isn't bragging this is a celebration of, of who you are so it's kind of i look at it as it's your inner goose coming out to play so yeah. um edward what made you the odd duck i was just being me i don't think I, you know I, I realized i was odd i didn't want to fit inside a, a, the cookie cutter mold um, I didn't ever feel when I was growing up that I had to be part of the gang or whatever to uh, to, to fit in. I was quite a sensitive young man. I guess I, I, I was always happy to to keep myself to myself if I didn't feel that that those people didn't align with with my views or the way that I looked at the world. So if that made me an, an odd duck, then perhaps you know not following the flock. <laughs> um, any individual things like. Gosh, I don't know. Very creative, imaginative mind. Again, none of these these qualities are unique to me. These are, you know, there are probably tens of thousands of your listeners that are that, that would say, okay, yeah, I'm I'm very creative, vivid imagination. I've got a good sense of of injustice. Again, these are, you know some of my core values, and I guess those individually, when put together, makes me that, that odd duck. But I think, you know, honestly, um, Edward, that I believe that everyone is equally creative. I think that what, where, what makes it special is that it's, you know, each individual's spin on that, you know, that makes us the odd duck. And 
you know, and you look, you didn't, you never wanted to fit in as a kid. You wanted to do things differently, you know, um, and that separated you from the flock, which is, which is, mm-hmm. is fine. And, you know, and it's really, you know, and you looked again of, of you know, you have a, a, a brain injury, which then set you in a different path. And I think that's really quite exceptional and, and how you're putting that into play. All right. That's what makes you awesome. So, and you led earlier into your superpower. You said your, your superpower is, to, is trusting your instincts. I've yet to hear anyone say that. And, and that is absolutely, that's, you're, you're, you're talking my language. <laughs> um, tell me um, I fought it. I fought it occasionally. And that's why, you know, it's, when I fought it, it, things didn't work the way they should. I should have just, you know, realized afterwards with hindsight, I should have trusted my intuition. So for my listeners, right, what does that look like? Can you put that into words of, 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 of trusting your instincts and to listen? You know, what happens when you don't listen to and what does that feel like when you do? You've experienced that firsthand. And I think a lot of yeah. people, as we get into adulthood, we, we forget that part of us. We forget to trust ourselves. And then, you know, and then we, well, the book says or, or Google says or, you know, my boss says or, right. And we, and we, I think we, I think we honestly lose that as we age. I've, I've never lost it. That's probably what makes me the odd duck. More so now, I've I've realised that that I need to relinquish control and be even more open and accepting of trusting my intuition. And I think I did it instinctively before the head injury, and then obviously I've had this sort of unsettling period, and I'm only now back at the stage where I probably was before the head injury in terms of total trust. And if I can describe it, it's if people wouldn't recognize it, you know, something is said to, to you and you get that little butterfly moment or you get that unsettling in the t- in the stomach and you think, oh, okay, I'm not quite sure. Um, okay, yes, I'll do it. Even though you're feel un- you just feel unsettled. So you just got to listen to your body, really. I mean, for me, it's my gut. And that's where, you know, I, I feel unsettled if something doesn't sit right with me. So it, it, it doesn't resonate or, you know, it just there's a, a clanging bell and you go, whoa, that doesn't. So, so sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it's, it's, whoa, no, I'm not going there. I'm not going to make that decision. Um, but sometimes it's a lot more subtle than that. So you just, I think it's just about people listening to their, their, their own bodies and, and, and knowing uh, what harmony feels like. And when you feel uneasy. You know, it's interesting when we talk about instinct that, you know, we never, we never point to our head. We always talk about it's our gut whole, or we talk about our heart. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole body thing. You know, the, our, our, we are more connected than we, than we would uh, like to believe, I think, in terms of, um, or, or the medical profession would like you to believe. I mean, obviously, there are certain medical, you know, th- philosophies and theories that, that, that would say, oh, yes, of course, everything's connected. You know, sort of Eastern medicine is obviously it's one of those um, about that energy flow. And I think it's just that sense of when you feel disrupted in whichever part of the body it is, <laughs> um, that, that's your body, that's your, your intuition, that's your subconscious telling you that actually you're making a decision that's against what your core values are. So when I'm mentoring, I try to make my mentees very, very conscious of of what their core values are so that they're consciously aware of them so that they know that when they get that funny feeling, that's that internal decision-making process that 
that's saying no, these don't align or. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a funny thing because, you know, we tend to want to listen to our heads, but really we should be listening to our bodies. Yeah. Because I think we, that's always the, 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 the rational part of the brain that tries to kick in to analyze and rightly or wrongly, I think we're conditioned mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a species over modern times to pay more attention to the rational side mm-hmm. than to perhaps the, the, the subconscious irrational aspects of, um, of the human psyche. So we need to listen to our odd duck. Mm. Excellent. So Edward, can you, um, can you tell me about a time when someone did something for you that made an impact on your life? There's been many subtle ones, very, you know, very little things. And I think that's part of, part of what I recognize now is, is that something as a gesture that might be completely insignificant from your perspective has the impact that it has on, on someone else. And I think just growing up, it was from my parents, really. It wasn't, wasn't one instance. It wasn't one thing. It was just that environment that they created to enable me to, I guess, a nurturing environment that just enabled me to flourish and um, be con- you know, confident in myself to, to make decisions for myself. And I think that is what set me up to be that odd duck, to, to be confident in, enough in myself that I don't have to fit in. And I think that's probably the bedrock of, 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 of Edward. That's, that's... So take me, can you go back to a specific time, Edward, um, whether it be your mom or your dad, that, you know, that defining moment when you got it, that shifted things, that had that, that had, that had left that mark on you? The only one that comes to mind in terms of shifting moments, I guess, was, um, I'm not even sure how old I was, but I, I can, I've, I've got a vision of myself sat on the edge of a cliff with my dad and my mum freaking out and my dad saying, it's fine. You know, my mum's obviously seeing the crumbling cliff edge and, <laughs> and, and wanted to protect. Um, my dad saying, it's fine, we're okay, because obviously he was in the parachute regiment, so heights weren't a thing for him. Um, just being on the sea was, was his, <laughs> uh, was his um, uncomfortable um, element. But, and I guess that was probably the, looking back, even though I probably didn't realise it at the time, that was just that knowing that the trust, I guess, the, the, the bond and the trust. And um, my dad, you know, most other parents might go, okay, I'm so reckless. But just having that trust that um, knowing that, that I could experience these things without, with him being there and, and, and being there to, to, to support me. Uh, probably rather extreme, but... But is it? You know, your dad took you to the edge and let you know that it was okay. Mm. That's a valuable life lesson right there. Yeah. I've always said, if you're not living life on the edge, you're taking up too much space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Edward, what are you doing right now to better the pond? You know, what are you, what are you doing to get back? What are you doing to make the pond better? That's my first question. And my second question to that is, why are you doing it and, and why does it matter? Everything that I've been doing. So you mentioned about the book and the, uh, the film production pieces and everything else, which, it, which is not obviously within my, that's not my core element or, or expertise, but the reason that I've been doing those. So, so the current one before this uh, pandemic sort of kicked in, we were in mid production for a new movie called dreamer. And so that was one of the projects that I've been working on. And um, it was 
looking like we might not be able to finish the full filming because of the lockdown. And, and so that's one of the things we're working on at the moment. But I just had an email last night from the director saying, I'm the executive producer on the film, uh, from, from the, the director saying that we've pushed everything forward. We realised that we're not, because originally we were hoping to launch the, the, the film at the uh, Toronto Film Festival in September. That's obviously not going to happen. But we've worked with the production team, post-production team have been working hard and we've, we've, we've come up with something that we think might be ready for July of this year. And the primary for that was the fact that, um, I forget who said it, but they said, you know, people will stop dreaming until we can help them see the future again during this period of lockdown and what have you. And that's what this film was originally sent out to do. It was actually, it's called Dreamer. And it was about giving re social reference to those people that, that perhaps have had big dreams that didn't fulfill on them and just giving them the, the the impetus to actually say look you know go ahead and you can be amazing and still achieve those big dreams and part of the reason for me getting involved with these kinds of projects is to actually my purpose that I have at the moment or that's come out of the clarity from the head injury and everything else is to transform three billion lives um, in well, a meaningful say, say that again um, we, to we transform are. three billion, so I didn't say million, I said billion with a B, lives in a positive and meaningful way. And when I set that goal, I didn't have a clue how I was going to achieve it. It came as a consequence of reading a report that an additional three billion people over the next five to ten years would be accessing the internet. So that would take, take, take us pretty much up to, 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 the, to the eight billion population by twenty. 2025 or whatever it would be it just struck me as a, as a humanity you know a, a human conflict in the respect that we still don't we have billions of people that still don't have access to you know clean water every single month around the world because of natural disasters or droughts or uh, pollution and 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 things like that so it was, it was just driven from the fact that i will use my skills to uh, make a difference uh, both both to the planet to people and find ways to actually have a, a legacy so it's that very much in, in the analogy of, of yourself with the pond it's my, my vision was if I can just influence one person to change their mindset on how they do their business or how they innovate products to not use plastics to use something else to, to or, or to not just create the next app that's going to sit in Apple I, you know, uh, iStore or, or whatever it might be to, to actually say, okay, what could I use my skills for that would actually have a positive meaning impact on just the life of one other person? And it was very much that pebble in the pond to see how far those ripples would, would influence someone else and someone else and someone else um, to achieve that, you know, at least 3 billion. Because uh, I, I was asked that question by Jack Canfield. He said, why only three billion? Why not the whole planet? And I said, well, I'm happy to increase the number. But I think three billion, yeah, three billion lives would actually tip the balance in terms of the environment and the, and the, the, um, and the impact that it would have to, uh, to others. So, you know, there's, that's, I, I guess, and that's part of the, the reflection of why am I doing this? It was because I'm fed up with, you know, helping clients, uh, make billions of dollars. I don't want to be measured on when I go out. I don't want you know, when I leave this 
leave this world. I don't want to be measured on how many billions of dollars I've helped clients make. I want to be measured on the number of billions of lives I've helped change. Wow. That's amazing. So how far, you know, right now, presently, uh, Edward, how, how far do you think you've come in that journey? It's been very slow. It's like anything, building up a momentum. It's very interesting. You know, I, I have the tagline that I, I created back, back three, three, I think it was almost three years ago, was to transform three billion lives, one, one mind at a time. And I have been, everyone I touch, I've been transforming that, you know, that their mindset or their lives. And it's been interesting where I've also been working with people that have either had brain injuries or strokes or whatever. They've all been told this same phrase. It's almost as though it's in the, doc, in the doctor's hand, handbook that says you've reached a plateau and you're, you're not going to get any better. So I, I, if anything, I just, that was the reason for writing the, my story in the book was to, to transform one person's life to actually say, have faith and um, trust that you, you know, your brain's an, an amazing organ and you can get better. So then before I'm going to challenge you, I bet you can't affect 8 billion lives. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Edward, I mean, that's fantastic. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm with you. And if you see the map behind me, um, you know, my goal is to have Goose here, um, you know, make his way around the world and, 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 and you know, uh, affect the entire pond. So I, I definitely share that with you is, you know, and one step at a time, one person at a time, one gesture at a time, one kind word at a time, that's all it takes. Um, yeah. And what we are doing is throwing those ripples, you know, throwing the pebble in the pond and those ripples just yeah. keep going out. And I think that you never know the effect that you can have, like something so simple, you don't know the other side of that. And, and that's yeah. the beauty of it. You never know whether that person's having a bad day and that you're just one, one kind gesture was the difference between them committing suicide or not. And having been at the very low point in my, my recovery, and I was saying about my um, clinical depression, at a very low point, I, I almost committed you know, suicide. So I, you know, I do, um, do empathize with that, that one kind gesture. But one of the things we were saying about um, projects, so, so part of me reevaluating is the projects that I work on is that those projects that I work on, I evaluate to say, well, you know, what's the maximum impact that I can achieve with that project because my time's limited so if i if i can only impact you know 10,000 lives with with one project i'll choose one that's going to has the potential to to impact millions over those 10,000 so part of the, the the sort of the progress has been to work with sort of a few individuals with some crazy innovations to um to impact the most most lives possible but here's here's the funny thing are they crazy they're crazy to other people. They're not to me. <laughs> so that's my, that's my, that's my hook as it were, you know, anyone that's called your dream crazy, come and speak to me and then we'll see if um, we can be crazy about it together. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So, um, so Edward, what is, what is, what does your future look like? And uh, you know, you are, what is, I want you to paint me a picture of, of your golden pond. Um, what does the future look like? You were the, you were the all knowing, you were the sage goose on the pond. Um, you, and you have your crystal ball and, and you're looking forward. What is, what does your golden pond look like? A world where everyone is considerate, compassionate, has empathy for others, where the, the best is brought out and, and, and is encouraged, not just brought out, but encouraged rather than, you know, Unfortunately, during this, this, this current period, we're, we're seeing people reverting to type of being horrible and nasty and, and selfish. 
we are obviously seeing a lot of people that are being very kind, compassionate, putting themselves uh, before others. And um, I guess that sort of the utopia would to, would would be um, where our oceans aren't clogged with plastics and pollution of mercury and other things, and that you know we do have a clean environment that you know we're happy to breathe the air knowing that future generations aren't going to be you know grow up deformed or mutated because of some decision that some corporate made to uh to introduce some chemical because it improved their productivity and i think it's just about um looking at the triple bottom line from a business perspective so part of my drive at the moment is is purpose around purpose-led businesses and i think that is the the new epoch of um of, of the new world in that we have people that are not just centered around making a profit all the time. And it's about actually having community and social respect for others. Do you think that this uh, situation that we've presently gone through with the pandemic um, has given us a different perspective and possibly start to look now at that, that, that view of, you know, people over profits? It certainly started to, um, I'm certainly hearing those conversations a lot more than I was hearing before. And I think there's um, the one good thing that's come out of this is, is people have, have um, stopped their nine to five jobs. They've had a break of environment. They're not continuously in this um, groundhog day of wake up, go back to work. They're able to, to actually sit still, think, see the blue skies, um, because the, you know we don't have the pollution levels that we, we've had. Um, there are reports from around the world of um, of the environment sort of improving, and I, I I sincerely hope that this is the impetus that we needed as a as a as a as a race as a you know, as humanity to actually recognise, or for everyone individually to recognise that we couldn't continue the way that we were were going. It was untenable. I, th I certainly think from the research that's been done just prior to the, the, the pandemic was showing that there was a, a conscious shift to purpose rather than profit. So people would, would buy and switch their, their, their purchasing habits to, towards purpose led businesses rather than brands and, and businesses that didn't take, you know, played lip service to the environment and um, to, you know, doing good rather than making money. Right. Absolutely. Edward Fitzgerald, I want to thank you ever so much. I want to thank you for being the odd duck. I want to thank you for, um, for, you know, for your brain injury. Uh, I think that it has been an incredible, you know, incredible gift to society because I think really, you know, you, when you started to understand yourself and what was important and you now are, are looking to help others because of that. And I think that's an incredible story. So, so Edward, where can, uh, where can people go to find you? Um, and I also want to know, you know, here's here's the bit of a plug. We want to we want to plug the movie. We want to plug the book. Where do we go to find you, Edward? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on uh, most social media outlets as as Ed Fitzgerald UK. Um, so you can find me on Facebook or Instagram. Not so much, not so active on Twitter, but certainly that some of the feeds uh, um, get re repeated on Twitter. Certainly um, from the, and, and obviously I'll be announcing the um, the trailer very soon for the movie called called Dreamer. And um, yes, so uh, just so, so 
perhaps the audience, um, your listeners know, we've got uh, Lisa Nichols um, involved, who's a big, um, uh, motiv motivational, transformational speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, we have Dean Kamen, who's a, a billionaire inventor who invented the Segway. That was one of his sideline inventions um, amongst all the medical ones that he'd done. Um, we've got Peter Diamondis, um, who was the ch chairman and founder of, of XPRIZE. We also have uh, Anusha Ansari, who is the current CEO of XPRIZE. Mm -hmm. And she was the first female uh, private astronaut um, to, to go into space. Um, so yes, so we, we've got a quite an eclectic, and there's a few others that, 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 we've, uh, that, that go into the movie to share their stories. So um, if anybody wants to follow me on, on, uh, on any of those uh, social media platforms, then um, I'll, I'll obviously be promoting the, the movie through that. Excellent. And I, I'll, I'll uh, definitely push it out as well on, on my social feeds. So, um, all right, so there we have it. You know, we had, a, I, Edward, I had a great time with you today. I mean, I think you've got a remarkable story. I think you're doing amazing things. You're, you know, you're exemplary of when I talk about people who better the pond. I sincerely, sincerely thank you for doing everything that you're doing. And I think that uh, we're going to have a great relationship and um, we're definitely going to keep in touch. Uh, we, we, I think we're very like-minded. So thank you again, Edward. I really appreciate it. This is Warren Berry. And if you want to reach out to me, it's warren at instinctivesolutions.ca. And uh, today we did go across the pond. So we're going to take you beyond the pond to better the pond because we're better together. Thank you, Edward. Thank you very much, Warren. Well, thanks for landing on the Better the Pond podcast. Do you know someone who should be in our flock? Contact Warren at warren at instinctivesolutions.ca to tell us their story. Until next time, what ripples will you create? Cheers.